The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Good afternoon, and welcome to this week's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I'm your host, Ian Fisher, and it's a fiery day for a podcast in Portland, Oregon. We are looking at triple-digit temperatures here in a city where more than half the residents have no air conditioning, uh, and smoky skies from a wildfire in nearby British Columbia. So we're holding it down. No matter the time, no matter the weather, we've got another terrific show lined up for you. Kids are heading back to school over the next month, which means that the nearness of college application season is inarguable, no matter what your senior wants to say. We're going to be talking about how to get started on essay writing, if you haven't already begun. And for those of you with grandparents or other family members who are willing to kick in a little financial support for the cost of college this fall, we want to give you some things to think about in our finance segment in the third part of the show. Uh, we will not be having tips on how to solicit money from grandparents, but how to use that money once it's been offered. Uh, Before we get to all that, we want to continue our behind-the-scenes looks at college admissions offices all over the country, and I'm fortunate to be joined today by my colleague, Kenan Dick, who, before coming to College Coach, worked in admission at both Drexel University and later Swarthmore College in the Philadelphia area. Welcome back to the show, Kenan. Thank you very much, Ian. Glad to be here. So Drexel and Swarthmore, two, two schools, same part of the country. Uh, but pretty different. Um, what would you mm-hmm. say are sort of the defining characteristics of, of each of them, for those of our listeners who are unfamiliar, your, your kind of 20-second elevator pitch? And for the, the schools themselves or for the, um, for the application process? For the schools themselves. Great. So I think um, Drexel University, I would say, is definitely an experiential-based um, education and we had a lot of students who were very much interested in the co-op program and wanted to be able to combine their career ambitions with their educational experience. And so uh, doing a year of, um, of educational work and then going out and putting that into practice for six months and then alternating that for the middle three years was exactly what they were looking for. And it also helped them kind of make sure and confirm that the path that they were on was going to be the right path for them so they didn't graduate start a job and say, oh, this is not what I thought being an engineer or being an accountant was going to be. So I gotcha. think that uh, for Drexel, that was very much you know, the intertwining of the academic and the experiential was, was key to their program. And so it's a pretty was, big school, right? About 25,000 undergrads? Correct, yes. So it, was, okay. it was much larger, uh, certainly in comparison to, to Swarthmore College, which is about 1,500. So okay. um, in that respect, and in many other respects, they were, they were kind of night and day. And Swarthmore College, I think, was kind of sees itself as kind of a quintessential liberal arts college and mm-hmm. very much ingrained in 
the uh, involved in the, the life of the mind and being able to really think theoretically about the kinds of things that students were interested in. In addition to that, there's a, a real sense of that Quaker ethic and being able to use that academic experience that you're and the education that you're receiving to do good in the world, to, to be an agent of change, to go out there and, and make a difference in society. And mm. so I think that the, you know, the, the, the philosophy of the school very much kind of directs the kind of experience that students have there. And, uh, and again, very much in the, the liberal arts tradition. Great. That's perfect. And, and a nice introduction to a couple of schools that I think are, are quite interesting. And I like to encourage them for, for students. I, I don't know that I necessarily would encourage both schools for any single student because they're so dramatically different. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that Drexel can find its way to a certain type of list, as can Swarthmore. Let, let's start with Swarthmore. Um, you know, that's a place that I considered a peer uh, of Reed's when we were, um, when I was working in the Reed admission office. Uh, in, in one way is because, you know, it's a small liberal arts college, it's competitive, but also kind of looking for a different kind of student, that the, the fit seemed to be important there uh, in a way that maybe was more significant than some other more competitive liberal arts colleges or similarly competitive liberal arts colleges. That's exactly right, and um, and I think that you know Swarthmore kind of saw schools like Reed and the University of Chicago and schools like that um, that were a little bit different in, in their approach in the way that the, the fit kind of was a part of their admissions process. And we definitely saw ourselves as being a little bit off the beaten path, really kind of mm-hmm. like I was saying before, kind of engrossed in the life of the mind. And for some students, that kind of words that would go along with, you know, nerdy or quirky or intellectual, those were kinds of the, the descriptors that students would use for themselves. Mm-hmm. And the other kind of thing that I think was really interesting about Swarthmore was that it was really a coming together of students from all walks of life. And so you had students that were coming out of wealthy suburbs, you had students who were coming out of, you know, poor towns in or rural America. In, there was a real... Um, a real desire to kind of bring all of these types of students together that were equally engaged in trying to understand one another and understand more about the world that they live in and the society they lived in. And I thought that was kind of an interesting thing. Um, And because of that all walks of life kind of idea that that it it had kind of a quirkier nature, I think is is one way to put it and one way that it was described. Um, than some of the other peer institutions. Um, and I think that, you know, that was one of its, the characteristics in the way that it saw itself as being different from the others. So at Reed, we, we often would look for um, intellectual curiosity. It was one of those things that we, was sort of indispensable in the application. We really needed to see it in some form or another um, mm-hmm. to, to be able to be excited about the application. I'm wondering if there are terms that you all used in the SWAT admission office where you were talking about uh, what you were looking for from a compelling candidate and where in the application you tended to find those things? Great question. Um, I think there's, there's two things that we were looking for. One was certainly that, that intellectual bent and students who really wanted to have deep intellectual debates. Hmm. Almost always that was coming out of, or at least, um, reinforced by the teacher recommendation. This right. is a kid that would take, you know, the discussion in class to a different level. 
that they were bringing in materials from outside of the class that the student or that the teacher never assigned, but would have a knowledge base well beyond what was expected of them just within the confines of that class. Mm-hmm. And so it, it, that was something that intellectualism was something that we were really looking for. And another thing that I think was, um, was important, too, was that they had the ability to kind of think outside the box, that, they, that they, their thought patterns were a little different, that they mm-hmm. looked at the world in a different way, and could thereby, thereby kind of challenge their peers in the way that they think um, in those debates that, they, that we assumed that they would have. And so, you know, the, the students that wanted to be in that small classroom environment and really kind of mix things up with each other and challenge each, each other in kind of that, that um, collaborative way so that they could figure out what the truth was, that was part of, I, I think, what we we're trying to create in that community. Yeah, uh, that that makes total sense. I remember, you know, I was working with a student actually last fall who you did a mock interview for, um, and he was really interested in Swarthmore. And you mm-hmm. sort of said, yeah, he's got that intellectualism, he's got that quirkiness. But then the question of how to actually translate that to the application was something that he and I, you know, sort of had to, to work on a little bit. Um, how do you recommend that students approach the supplement, um, you know, which is basically why you want to come to Swarthmore? Um, but how, how should students approach that? And are there specific kinds of things that they want to convey through that supplement? I, I think the, the understanding of the college culture and, um, and a reflection of that, you do, it doesn't have to be the entirety of the essay by any stretch, but there at least mm-hmm. has to be kind of a nod to, uh, to the uniqueness of this culture on campus and it being a part of what you're looking for. And so, you know, and, and that can take, you know, a lot of different, um, a lot of different approaches. I remember distinctly one student who was, you know, fairly conservative, which is, is not a viewpoint that, that is prevalent on, on their campus. But the, the, the argument that he said was, if I can, you know, bring my viewpoints to, to campus here, and in the vigorousness of the debate that I know I'm going to have, I can come out with solidify it, and these these views are going to come out um, so much stronger than they were before because I'm going to be challenged every single day. And and I thought that was just kind of a really interesting um, way to look at it. But it's, hmm. but that's kind of the the crux of what we're looking for is yeah. you know are you are you eager for that debate? So I think that that's one. I think that sometimes the, the Quaker ethic and how that manifests itself in a very flat um, kind of hierarchy that professors see themselves as peers, not necessarily professors, that you're right. kind of all co-engaged in, in creating this, um, this knowledge base. So I think that there's um, elements like that that I think are really important to, um, to acknowledge in what's a fairly short device walk month. It used to be a page long, now it's 250 words, so you don't right. have a lot of space to, to be able to connect in that way. So, right. um, so I think that those are elements that, that, she, that, that need to be there. Interesting. Um, when we were working at, at um, Reed and kind of looking for the same kind of thing, there was a lot more flexibility, I think, that was available to admission officers to admit students who, who demonstrated a really strong fit with the institution. Um, we didn't necessarily have to go with, by the numbers in every case. We weren't admitting the 
you know, 500 kids who had the best SAT scores or the best combination of SAT scores and grades, but we're really able to be flexible in terms of our admission. Um, is that something that that's true at Swarthmore? And does that mean something? Is that sort of a, a you know, an opportunity for a student to hope if, uh, you know, their their grades are a little bit off the mark, but they show a strong fit? I think uh, the, the short answer is yes. Um, we definitely saw more of that in the early decision phase than we did in the regular decision phase. Mm-hmm. And in EG, we had the flexibility to kind of take those kids that were a really strong match and or had kind of compelling reasons that we wanted to bring this student into the community for the, you know, for the characteristics that they bring. We had a lot less of that in regular decision. And part of the reason for that was that we had the college charges. So we had, you know, X amount of engineers we had to bring in, we had athletes we had to bring in, we had, you know, all of, uh, you know, positions, artists, all sorts of buckets that we had to fill. And then once all of that work was done, there were precious few spaces left over for you to, to take the kids that you want. So, um, so I think that it, we saw the, the ability to, to do that much more so in, uh, in the EP phase than we did in the RG phase, right? Interesting. So, so sort of a, I think a, an opportunity for students who especially are demonstrating a good fit with SWAT and seeing that it's a place that fits them really well, that early decision might be your your best opportunity to, to be admitted, especially if you're a little bit below average in terms of the more traditional academic measures. Um, I want to turn I want to turn our attention to Drexel a little bit. It's uh, mm-hmm. because of your experience there, and you know we have this great opportunity to talk to you, you know, somebody who worked at two very different institutions. Um, and you know Drexel has seen a really big shift, uh, especially recently. But you know they they used to use a fast app that was sent to tens of thousands of applicants and they were getting huge numbers of applications, but that was something that the institution uh, wasn't, it wasn't working out well for the institution. Um, Do you want to talk a little bit about the role of the FAST app and sort of its effects uh, on enrollment management? I think um, that in terms of that evolution, I was there for for the beginning phases of that. And, you know, the real mantra was to try to get as many applications as, as you could. And part of it was that, you know, there's the, that perception that if you had, you know, more applicants to choose from, then you could, um, you know, choose the one that you thought were going to be a good fit for Drexel, and then, um, and then you'd have more, essentially, that you could say no to. And for, you know, many of the purposes, um, you know, of U.S. News and World Reports, that would be, reflect well on the institution. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, over time, what they discovered was that even though you can really use some kind of um, technologically advanced uh, methodologies to ramp up your application pool, you still have the problem of trying to make sure that people understood a very unique type of institution within the spectrum of institutions. Right. And so what they discovered was that their yield would fall because even though there's, they were getting these applications, they weren't well-informed applications. And as they understood that this is on a quarter system, that there's a co-op program, that there's a very technologically, uh, technology-bent kind of uh, culture to the school, the, the appeal of it was not for them. So mm-hmm. I think what they're doing now is that they're, they're recognizing that that yield number is also important. And making the effort to to get students 
applicants who are more better informed about what Drexel represents and the, um, the pluses and, and the, the plus factors of this kind of co, um, co-equal uh, set of experiences within the co-op program and the academics. And so, so they've, they've recently mm-hmm. required, reintroduced the common application is the only way to apply, which obviously requires an essay, um, mm-hmm. you know, potentially could require letters of recommendation. Um, right. What are the lessons for students in understanding sort of this shift? Does that affect how a student should think about their process of applying to colleges in general? Uh, and does it affect how a student might think about applying to a place like, like Drexel that's making a change in their application materials? Yeah, I, I think that um, we've, I'm sure that you've run across these students before who um, are doing, for, at least for some of the schools on their list perhaps, a minimal amount of research on a particular school before they apply. And right. they, so they, they have that kind of initial attraction. They apply to the school. They learn more about the school. And that initial attraction kind of a fade, it fades away. And I think that, um, that this is the lesson of Drexel is, I think, a good one as well in terms of how students approach that list, is that if they, if they do that research up front and they're they're, they've visited the school, they've done their research on the different types of programs that are offered and making sure that that is all a good match for them. And there's a, a cultural match between what the, what is offered and, and what they're looking for. That, the, that, that sense of match, that sense of connection, both with the student and the institution, will be mutual. And that overall strengthens the application. So when, you know, just as it was true at Swarthmore, I think to a certain extent, all schools are looking for those applicants where they say they've done their homework, they've found the right match for them, and we're it. Yeah. And you know, being a, a very kind of niche-based institution like a Drexel or like a Swarthmore, when you recognize that fact in the applicant, it really does kind of strengthen the appeal of that app. That's great. That's a great uh, message, I think, for students and. Uh... I want to thank you, Kenan, for joining us for this segment today and, and introducing us to Drexel and Swarthmore. We could have kept going for, yeah, for quite a bit longer. <laughs> uh, but thanks a lot for, for being on the show today. Absolutely. My pleasure. Take care. All right. When we come back, we're going to be talking about getting started on your essays. So don't go away. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. 
Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the show. How's your essay coming along? Those can be some pretty devastating words to hear from a uh, college counselor, teacher, especially a parent. Uh, And it's devastating if you haven't started writing yet. Sometimes choosing a topic is hard. You don't know where to begin, aren't sure how to talk about yourself, can't figure out what they want to read, you're having trouble selecting from among the prompts. Does this sound familiar? We want to help you out. Joining me for today's essay kickoff is Karen Spencer, former Georgetown and Franklin and Marshall admission counselor and strategic whiz when it comes to inspiring writing. Welcome, Karen. Thank you, Ian. You're welcome. Uh, So most students are out there. They're starting their essay process on their own. Uh, Some have, you know, the support of uh, teachers and parents to help them brainstorm a little bit as well. Uh, and I think there are probably two stages of essay writing. We've got topic selection and we've got the writing itself. So let's start with with topic selection. And one of the questions I think students always begin with is this big question. How do I know what I should write my essay on? If you get that question from a student you're working with, what's the answer to that? So the answer to that is you don't uh, know what you should write on, right? That's, that's what we're here to do. That's what the brainstorming process is all about. There really isn't a formula um, and that's the first thing um, I always tell students, do not, and I know you will agree with me on this, do not write what you think the admissions officer wants to hear. That will be the kiss of death. This will be the most boring pedestrian essay in the history of the planet. So please don't do that, right? So think about what you want to write about. I always tell a student, like, you can essentially, for mo- many, many schools, write about whatever you want, right? I mean, the Common App, yes, it has prompts, but there's kind of vague for a reason, right? I think, and this, we could talk about this later, but, you know, how important it is to answer the prompt exactly, the answer there depends a little. But, you know, for the common app, there's a fair amount of wiggle room if you're applying to a school with that and takes that application to kind of write about whatever you want to, within, you know, within reason. And so, you know, the key thing here is that no one else should have been able to write that essay that you pick except for mm-hmm. you. Um, so I will talk about, you know, one of the first things I'll say is what could you talk about at nauseum? Right? Because if you can't talk about it, you can't write about it. Um, you know, I, I had a student once in my office who was indeed very, very interested and very um, involved with jazz music. He was a saxophone player. Three of his seven courses were in music. He wanted to go to NYU and minor in music. One of the reasons he liked New York was because it had this great jazz scene. So he wanted to write about his love of jazz music, which I thought, okay, great, right? You've demonstrated interest in it. It's clear you are passionate about this topic. But then I said, you know, what is it going to tell me about? You, what does your, your love, I mean, looking at your resume, I already know, obviously, that you like jazz, so what is it I'm learning about you, you know, through this essay? Well, you know, it's like, 
You know, I love to play jazz on my saxophone. I mean, we could, I mean, we spent 15 minutes and that's about all I could drum up from him. So if that's all you can give me verbally, you don't have, you don't have a topic. Um, so that's one of the first things is like, what do you like to talk about a lot? And, and, and don't over, you know, emphasize like what the topic has to be in terms of whether that is essay material. Just tell me, what do you like to talk about? Baseball stats, um, political science, um, you know, your Legos, whatever, but start there. Right. I had a, a student yesterday and she was talking about, we were just at the very early stages of this and there was a topic she wanted to write about fundraising for an organization and how much money she'd, she'd raised. And, you know, I said to her that that information about your fundraising can be in your activities resume. So unless you have more to say about the process of fundraising and what that means about who you are, then we can say, you know, this, this idea can be shared in your activities list. And I think it's important not to write the essay that, says something that you want to convey, but instead gets back to the core of, of who you are um, and, and helps an admission officer to learn about who you are and what your approach to the world is. Um, so this is all, you know, this is great. So a student can say, cool, I got to write this essay. It's got to define me. Now what? How do I actually figure out identifying the topic that's going to work for me? What are some tools that you've got in your toolbox, questions that you ask, ways that you encourage students to approach this sort of topic selection? So the first thing, I, there's two things I, I do a lot. Uh, you know, I, well, there's three things I should say. One is I say there's certain essay topics, generally speaking, I think are off the table. There's not many of them, but there's generally three that are off the table. So don't start with those. Um, the second is really asking yourself some probing kind of questions and, and maybe asking your family and friends some probing questions. And then my third strategy is um, is to see what a good essay can look like. Now, we'll get to that third one in a second because I know that's, that has a mixed opinion on our staff about whether that's a good idea or not. But so the first thing is let's take off the table writing about sports and what it taught you. Let's take off the table writing about somebody else, you know, ode to grandma, ode to your biology teacher, um, and take off how you went to a developing country or Appalachia or fill in the blank and how what you learned, right? Those three topics... With some exceptions, very little exception, but general exception, I, and I think you would agree with that, are generally off the table um, mm-hmm. for various reasons, right? Um, and I know you've talked about those before in the show. So one is don't bother to go with that because I don't want a kid to get super excited about a topic that I know I'm never going to approve. Um, the second thing is then to talk about kind of probing questions, you know, think about what are you known for most by your family and friends, right? So, you know, one of the things I would think about with me, I would say, is if you ask all of my family and friends, you included, one of the things I'm most known for is I talk really fast. In fact, on my computer right here is a note that says talk slower, knowing I was going to be on this program at 2.15. Yeah, so I hope people don't I, listen to this right. podcast at a one and a half speed. If you're doing that and we get to a Karen segment, you want to slow it down to 1x speed as opposed to right. one and a half exactly. speed. Exactly, yeah. because I talk really fast, right? And that in and of itself is not a, that interesting of a fact, frankly, but I do think it's actually a reflection of many other aspects of my personality, right? I generally move at a fast pace. I'm fairly impatient. I may not want put that in an essay, but, you know, I'm impatient. I'm very high energy, right? Find me a person who talks fast, who's low energy. Those two things don't go hand in hand, right? So it is, it's one fact that leads to other related personality traits, right? So I do think, you know, thinking about what are you known for most by your family and friends, or what's the story that perhaps your parents or your friends always tell about you, right? That's so indicative of who you are. And, and, and that story 
that they tell the story itself may or may not be that important, but it's why do they tell it, right? They probably tell it because it's such a good reflection of you. Now, maybe it's not a great story or it doesn't reflect you well, then maybe we don't use that story. But you know, those are some of the things. Um, that's just one of the second questions I, you know, I ask a lot of students. And then you know, the third thing is I will point them, especially kids who are struggling, to essays that have worked. So um, Johns Hopkins... Connecticut College and Tufts are three great websites um, that show, if you just Google essays that worked, Johns Hopkins or any of those colleges, you'll see that admissions officers have posted some of their favorite essays from previous years with commentary about why they like them. And, you know, I think some kids really, this process is so overwhelming for them, and they are, it's almost like being a visual learner, right? You have to see what a good personal narrative looks like. Because most kids have never had to write a personal narrative. They've always done expository writing. So this is a really different ballgame for them. And so sometimes it's just helpful to see what this is supposed to look like because I've had more than one student be like, oh, that's what they want. I'm like, yes, I don't want you to sound like that writer. I don't want you to sound like that author. I don't want you to pick that topic. But I want you to get a sense for what this is supposed to look like. Yeah, I go, I do a little back and forth on that. Um, that strategy, I do think it is super helpful for reinforcing to a student what the shape of it should be. You know, some students will write a five paragraph essay and each paragraph is a separate characteristic that defines them. So it's like a collection of five essays that are loosely connected. And you sort of say, well, no, what we're looking for is a more cohesive whole. And here's an example of that. But as a student, if you do stumble across sample essays, don't feel like you have to be that type of writer. Um, you know, often the ones that are admission officers' favorites can be the ones that are really different uh, because they stand out among a pool. But you can write a really great essay that doesn't necessarily have the same rhetorical flourishes as, as another student. So, you know, think about them as a model for a type of essay as opposed to a very specific sort of turn of phrase or writing style that you need to model. Um, Absolutely. Uh, what are some common mistakes that you see um, with students and their sort of identifying topics? You mentioned some of the ones that are um, that are off off the table no matter what. But are there common mistakes that students make where they sort of feel like, oh, this is a topic that I should be going for, um, and they're kind of headed in the wrong direction, and, and there's a reason for that? Um, I think it's... It's what's often they go with what they're familiar with, and sometimes that can be a great decision, and sometimes that's a terrible decision, right? It can either, because you're familiar with it, it it's, it's good when it's at the core of who you are, and that's why you're familiar with it. It's bad if it's familiar because it's kind of pedestrian, right? Because everybody's familiar with it, right? You know, I think, again, um, sports, again, I'll go back to that one, right? That's a familiar, right? It's, it's important to a lot of people, right? And again, I was a three-sport athlete in high school, and I'm a very big believer in sports. So when admissions officers say don't write about sports necessarily, it's not because we think sports is bad. It's that sports is so, um, you know, such a, you know, a universal experience for people, right? And so it's too familiar because it's hard to write about it in a unique way, right? Um, whereas something right. that is personal to you um, about the fact that your parents adopted three foster children well, guess what? Not everybody's writing an essay on that, right? So that is different, right? That, that is unique to you, right? Um, you know, not that anybody's parents have never adopted foster children, but I guarantee we're not getting 45 essays on that topic, right? And that has a lot of rich material in there to work with. And so you've got right. to think, how many other people could write this essay? Right. Don't, and don't be afraid to choose a topic that um, shows a little struggle and difficulty and challenge and discomfort. I mean, that occasionally can be helpful. You don't want to go too far in that direction, 
But it is, you know, if there's something that really cuts to the core of who you are, even if it's a tough topic, it might be worth worth looking into. Um, All right, let's Um, let's go ahead. Something else to add? No, go ahead. I I was just going to say the other websites that I love to kind of get the brainstorming writing, and this may be where you were going, but um, you know, kind of to get started. Two colleges that have essay prompts that I love, even if you're not applying to them, but I do think it helps get the juices flowing are Wake Forest and UVA. Um, both have really interesting um, essay prompts. They're short answers. So, again, I'm not interested if the kid is applying there, but I do think they tend to garner better essays than not from a lot of my students and help them to think in ways um, that maybe they weren't addressing the essay. They're very specific prompts, too, which is what I like. I think that it forces them to think about something very specifically, um, but I think sometimes your answers um, can be illuminating. Right. And, and that's, so we're getting now into the writing process. So you actually sit down, you've selected a topic, you've chosen what you want to write about. And the first question is, does it matter which prompt I respond to? Now that obviously for UVA or Wake Forest or supplemental essays, you need to respond to the prompt because it's very specific to that school. Well, what about choosing the prompt for the common application personal statement? So I actually asked, because uh, I wanted to make sure I was not the lone wolf here, and I remember asking all of our colleagues, did it ever? Did you ever care about which prompt the essay was addressing? And the universal no. <laughs> I never knew. I, I, I never knew not, which prompt. I didn't even know. I didn't even look. Like, I mean, I think right. I did say, like, checked off box two, you know, number. I, I didn't care. Nobody cares, what pro- especially in the comment. Again, supplemental essays, very different. It's extremely important to answer the question as posed because the college itself came up with this, right? And you have to remember that colleges don't pick the questions on the Common App. The Common App picks the questions on the Common App, and colleges utilize that service because it makes their lives easier. But I, if you ask a lot of colleges, would they change the questions on the Common App? Probably, right? So in this case, the Common App is just kind of a broad platform for you to talk about yourself. Those essay prompts I think of more as like, good kind of feeder questions to kind of get your juices flowing, but really which question you answer in the Common App, I've literally never met an admissions officer who cares which one you're addressing. And they had always, historically, they had a prompt that was sort of veiled, a veiled choose-your-own essay. This year, they actually explicitly offer a choose-your-own essay. So you don't have to worry so much about the prompt. Um, So students are sitting down, and they're starting to work on this. Uh, Would you recommend that a student just write? Uh, would you recommend that they do some kind of an outline? Uh, is there any sort of strategic thinking that you advise students to to have before they write that first draft? Or does it vary student to student? Uh, I do think it varies from student to student. I have had in the last, you know, 12, 13 years, some kids who are truly introspective and really good writers. I have one this year who can honestly bust out something that is you know, almost fourth draft worthy in their first draft. I will say that is by and large not common, right? I probably had 10 of those kinds of kids in my history of working a college coach. Um, that writing does not come naturally to a lot of students, even students who are bright. You know, this really has nothing to do with how good, you know, you perform, how well you perform in the classroom um, and how good of a writer you are. It seems to be somewhat not related whatsoever <laughs> in my experience. Right. Um, so, um, you know, I generally say the more work you do up front, the more, um, you know, brainstorming ideas, flushing out things, um, by the time it's time to write, it should write itself if you've done the prep work ahead of time. So I don't generally suggest that they just sit down and write. I generally suggest, um, you know, really kind of thinking about what, what, your, you know, what your topic is, um, what is your point. I ask this of every student. 
Um, you know, what is, in other words, what is the take home for the reader? Right? What am I supposed to learn from you at the end of all of this that I cannot find out somewhere else? More importantly, mm-hmm. right? Again, don't tell me that you have a passion for jazz. I assume that you have it all over your activities resume, right? That can't be the point. What is the take home for the reader? And if you can't tell me that in one sentence, you don't have a topic, so don't bother to write because you're just going to spend a lot of time and I'm just going to send it back with a lot of red on it. Um, so, no, I generally say lots of brainstorming, possible essay topics, write what the take-home is for the reader in every topic, and then do some kind of structure, right, where, you know, what, what, what evidence do you have to prove any of this, right? Um, you know, if you want to say, well, you know, I'm a really compassionate person, I want them to know that I believe that compassion is wholly necessary in society and, and, and you know, key to making the world go around. Okay, give me three examples at least how you, you, you prove that this is true, that you actually believe this by exhibiting this, right? If you don't, can't come up with three examples, for example, you also don't have an essay topic, right? Because that's, that's all lip service then. So it is a lot about brainstorming, a lot about structure, and do I have essentially almost like data to make my point? Right. That's the showing, not telling piece, right? You can't just say you're compassionate. Right. You want to have, you know, sort of an opportunity to be able to illustrate that with stories from your life. Um, so now get to it. Go out there and write, Karen. Thank you for joining us and talking through the uh, start of the essay process. You're welcome. Um, Good luck, everybody. For those of you who are interested in reading more about the college essay, I would also recommend an article by Rachel Tour, which was published in the New York Times on August 2nd. Uh, In that article, you'll find some really great tidbits about essay writing and some delightfully funny snippets from her prior admissions experience. So uh, look that up if you have the opportunity. And when we come back, we'll be uh, turning to the conversation of grandparents paying for college. Don't go anywhere. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Aliens with Gas, we are the extraterrestrial rock show airing every Saturday afternoon on the voiceamerica.com variety channel. <laughs> Whatever happens out and about, it kind of dictates our conversation. For sure. And we like to tie in a little bit of the past and obviously keep it real current. And real current was a couple nights ago right here in Phoenix, a phenomenon happened. On Thursday night. Phenomenon. Do, 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 do. <laughs> phenomenon. 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 
Phenomenon. (laughs) All right, never mind. (laughs) That's every Saturday right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. Take us on the go. It's even easier now. The Voice America Talk Radio Network has launched our mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market to download the app powered by Aircast. It's free and no registration is necessary. In minutes, you could be enjoying your favorite Voice America Talk Radio host, no matter where you are, in the car, out and about, while traveling, or anytime you can't be close to your computer. Catch up on the archives you've missed or discover new shows on the spot. Search Voice America at your favorite app store. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the show. Before our finance expert joins us, I'd like to continue our school spotlight interlude with an introduction to Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio. Imagine how it would look to future employers if you graduated college with internships from Procter & Gamble, Amazon, the CIA, or GE Appliances under your belt. At Case Western Reserve, one of the nation's leading research institutions, students have the unique opportunity to complete two full-time paid internships during their junior and senior years. Thanks to an innovative co-op program, Most science and engineering majors have access to hands-on work experience with some of the country's most in-demand corporations. Back on campus, research options for undergraduates are endless. During the summer or school year, students who are interested in pursuing cutting-edge research can turn to the university's 3,500-plus full-time faculty members or over 100 designated research centers and institutes for inspiration. While science and engineering majors are clearly top draws at CWRU, that's a mouthful, students can also choose from strong programs in the arts, humanities, management, social sciences, and nursing. Top applicants may even qualify for conditional admission into the university's medical, dental, law, or social work schools as part of the pre-professional scholars program. Interesting fact, graduate professional students at 6,500 actually outnumber undergrads on campus, just 5,100 of those undergrads. If you enjoyed this spotlight, we'll be doing more on future episodes, and you can also go to blog.getintocollege.com and search for School Spotlight. You'll see hundreds of schools there, and you can dive right in it. All right, we're at the time in the show where, like Scrooge McDuck, we jump into the money. Uh, joining me to talk <laughs> finance is my expert friend, Tara Piantanita Kelly. Welcome, Tara. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me. Of course, and we are talking about a really wonderful circumstance, right? Which is perhaps you've got some very generous grandparents who would like to contribute to your college education. Um, mm-hmm. This Now, I said at the beginning of the show that we wouldn't be giving any tips on how to convince your grandparents to pay for your college <laughs> education. This is sort of the after they've already agreed uh, point. Right. Um, so right. it's great, right? Somebody wants to cover some of the costs of attendance. There's nothing bad about that. Would you agree? Well, that's true. There is nothing bad about it, but there are some things that you're going to want to consider if that becomes your reality. There's there's some uh, some topics you'd want to 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 cover if if that becomes the case. 
okay, so what are some of the things that I want to think about um, if, you know, if grandma says, I'm, I'm happy to help with your college education? Um, what does that mean for me as a parent? Uh, well, uh, a couple of things. So, so first, number one, good for you to find somebody else to, to cover some of those costs. <laughs> that, is, that is excellent. You know, I, my favorite way to pay for things is something called OPM. It stands for other people's money. Other people's money, so if, yeah. If, if grandma's going to kick in, that's awesome. Um, but, uh, some, you know, it, it would be time to have kind of a frank discussion with grandma and say, you know, at what level are you considering, you know, um, for our planning purposes, how much do you want to kick in? Um, if, if grandma's thinking, you know, oh, I'll cover everything because college only costs $5,000, you know, then you're going to want to let her know, oh, if you're willing to cost, do $5,000, then we'll cover the rest, but just know that that's not going to go very far. So having kind of right. a frank discussion with, with grandma is, is better rather than just, oh, grandma says she's going to cover everything, so we're not going to save. <laughs> and then right. you know, find out that grandma's only willing to pony up five grand. Right. So. Is she talking 1950s dollars or 2010, 2020 right. dollars, right? So yeah, let's, let's make exactly. sure we're on the right page. Exactly. So uh, have the conversation. So that's so some extra considerations, and I think that's smart. And it, it mirrors a little bit of what I've heard a lot of you all on the finance team say about, you know, if you have an expense that uh, no longer exists, like childcare, it's good to take that expense and invest it in saving for college. So, you know, even if grandma says she's going to pay, maybe you can keep saving a certain amount to help keep yourself in a, in a good position. Um, so those are some things that maybe I want to think about, but this doesn't sound like there's a downside in any way. Is there... Is there a downside to grandma paying for college? Well, there there could be, I don't know if I want to call it a downside because someone else is, is covering it, but um, some considerations. So, so let's say yeah. um, that the student gets into the school of their choice and um, they, the student and the parents complete the financial aid applications and the student is awarded a need-based grant to cover some of their, some of their uh, costs. That's right. great, but then if grandma uh, gives money to the student, that is going to show as student income. And now all of a sudden when the student applies for financial aid you know, for a subsequent year, they're going to say, well, you don't qualify for any of this need-based aid anymore because you got, you know, grandma gave you, you know, 20 grand, and now you don't qualify for any need-based aid. So, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's great that grandma gave the money, but if it, if it impacts the financial aid, that's not necessarily a great thing. So if, if my grandmother just gives me money, um, that affects my income and assets and that's, that affects the financial aid formula. Yep. As opposed to, right. But if I just send the bill to her, uh, and she pays the bill, then it doesn't affect my financial neediness. Actually, it still does. It's considered. It still does. Grandma, yep. It, now, if there's there's a couple of, of considerations. One is financial sure. aid considerations, and that's what we're talking about here. Another consideration is the IRS gift tax, and that that is, um, right. you know, if, if grandma grandma can give, you know, grandma can give one person fourteen thousand dollars per year, and it doesn't invoke the gift tax rule. But any, you know, fourteen thousand and one, she's going to have to, you know, file a gift tax um, form as well. So, but so we'll talk about that in a little bit. But um, if if grandma just gives the, the student fourteen thousand dollars, then yes, the student says that that's income, that's untaxed income. If grandma, on the other hand, pays the school fourteen thousand dollars, it's still a gift, um, and it will still be considered untaxed income for the, for the student. Um, so it will impact financial aid. But what grandma can do, the way around this is, grandma can give the money to mom and dad. 
and mom and dad can then pay. So then, oh, then cause mom, yeah, mom and dad don't have to report gifts on the federal financial aid forms. Only the student does. So, so they, so mom and dad don't have to report the gifts, but they, they still have the gift tax form for the IRS. It just is not a part of the, the aid form. Right, right. It, so it, that's the way to get out of, um, you know, get around the whole financial aid implication. Um, have grandma give it to, to mom and dad rather than to the student. But the gift tax uh, laws still apply. So if grandma gives the student uh, more than $14,000 or give dad more than $14,000 or give mom more than $14,000, she's going right. to have to uh, do, uh, comply with the gift tax laws. But if grandma gives the school directly more than $14,000 for the student's benefit, then the gift tax, tax uh, law doesn't apply to that. Because it's but paying for a service, aid. basically, as opposed to giving the money, right? Right. Um, Right. So it will so, still impact financial aid in that case, but at least she won't have the gift tax implications. Good. So this is getting complicated, and I think we want to make it even yeah. more complicated, which is to ask, yeah. um, is there are there other strategies to avoid losing financial aid because of this gift? Are there things that we can do to try and retain our aid eligibility, even though grandma's giving us this funding? Yes, there are definitely strategies to do that. Um, and the, the first involves just timing. So uh, okay. starting with this school year, um, there's the, the financial aid process looks at something what we call we call it prior prior year financial uh, income. So if the student is starting school in 2018, they're going to look at the 2016 income. If, you know, when they're in school for 2019, they're going to look at the 2017 income, which means mm-hmm. that there's going to come a time while the student is still enrolled in college where that base year of income won't be considered because it will, it will be for a, a year after they've already completed college. So if grandma can wait until midway through the student's sophomore year in school, January of the student's sophomore year, then that will never be – she can give all of the money that she wants then. It's not going to impact the student's financial aid as long as the student graduates in four years. Does that make sense? It's a timing issue. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. What about, um, what about timing on the early end? You know, Grandma, grandma uh, says, uh, you know, we, we're great, we've we got a baby on the way due, uh, you know, in the fall. Uh, it's going to be 18 years before he or she goes to college. Uh, can we sort of avoid the financial aid implications by doing earlier paying for college? Oh, ab- Absolutely. So uh, there's a couple of things that, that grandma can do. Um, she can, if, if she wants to, she can create a, a 529 plan with the student as the beneficiary. So grandma would be the owner, the student would be the beneficiary, and she can fund that and, and that will work. The only problem with that is when the student does start to withdraw, you know, she goes to school and does start to withdraw from that 529 plan for um, uh, college costs, then that's going to be seen since since the money technically isn't coming from her parents or from her, it's coming from an outside source, again, that's going to look like um, the student is going to have to say that that income or gift money, so that, that will be a problem. But what, the, what grandma okay. can do instead is have mom and dad have a 529 plan with the student as the beneficiary, and grandma puts money into that fund. So when the student needs it and takes money out of that fund for college, it's not going to be seen as income for the student because it's coming from a fund that mom and dad own. But that will be considered a parental asset. And, and so 
um, that will be assessed at a rate somewhere between 4 and 6%. So let's say it, it's grown to $100,000. Um, that's a parental asset. That will just having that one asset will increase the student's expected family contribution by four to six thousand dollars. So it's still not perfect, but it is better than having the student income. And then yeah. another thing she could do is after college, let so don't give her anything during college or before college, but then after college, she can pay off some of the student's loans or make some of the student's loan payments. So hmm. there's, there's some creative ways that, that she can still contribute without having it uh, be detrimental to the student's financial aid package. And is there some strategy that's associated with that loan uh, idea with respect to when interest begins to accrue um, you know, on those loans? Like uh, some student loans, they, they don't begin to accrue interest until a year after you graduate, right? Well, um, it, it's it's a six month. There's a six month grace period on the subsidized loans. Yep. So, gotcha. Um, so yeah, that would be um, you know beneficial. If uh, another thing that grandma could do is is be if for the loans that are accruing interest, let's say an unsubsidized loan or maybe a private yeah. educational loan, um, she could be making the interest payments on that so that uh, the uh, yeah. it won't be capitalized. So, um, but again. Anything that she does during one of those four base years, um, the student is going to have to, to report as, as income. But, so, and I've mentioned that a couple of times, but student income has something called an income protection allowance, um, and right now it's at $6,400. So that means hmm. that a student can have total income, total untaxed income, gifts, uh, totaling up to $6,400 or less, and it won't impact her financial aid at all but anything over that 6400 So if grandma were to give $10,000, then yes, it would impact. If she gave 5000 it wouldn't impact. Gotcha. Gotcha. Grandma sounds so generous, and I'm just, I'm so sad that I have to tell her about all these ins and outs about how, yes, how it goes. Yes, and, and I'm, I'm thinking that, you know, I want her to adopt me so that she'll pay for my daughter's <laughs> college as well. <laughs> right. That is, yeah, that doesn't sound bad at all. And I have to, I have to thank my, my grandparents who actually did pay for my college education. I was so lucky uh, to have that opportunity and, and that worked out extremely well. So this is a great thing you can do if you can do it for a loved one. If you're a grandmother or grandfather listening to our podcast, uh, you know, hopefully this helps you to figure out a little bit about what those rules look like and how to be uh, as effective with your giving as you can be. Uh, that's all the time we have, Tara. I want to thank you for coming to help okay. us work through this topic. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Of course, we look forward to having you back. Yes, and I'll look forward to being back. Just let me know. <laughs> you got it. Next week, uh, <laughs> Beth is back with our Common App expert, Elise Krantz. They'll be talking you through all the big changes to the Common App for this fall, and there are quite a few. You seniors won't want to miss it. We'll also discuss the activities resume and budgeting for college parents, and getting things in order seems to be the theme of the show, so uh, you won't want to miss that. I'm off to find somewhere cool in this port scorching Portland heat. I kind of wish I was hanging out with Tara by the pool uh, where she <laughs> is. Uh, but, you know, that's not really feasible when you've got coast-to-coast -coast colleagues. Uh, wherever you are, hope you're enjoying these last days of summer before you head on back to school. Uh, enjoy the weekend. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
Have a good week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 